And he has done all of this throughout history to communicate to his people one thing. God is saying, only I can be trusted. And so often his children do not trust him. Last week we began a new section of Isaiah. Tom shared a lot about God's greatness in terms of his size and his power and how everything fits in his hand or in this circle that he had us draw. And God has said these things to comfort his particular people at a particular time in history in a particular place because they have gone from being in imminent danger of being conquested by Babylon to now they have been conquered by Babylon. In fact, they might not even have read this text until after all of that. I don't know if they allow scripture readings when you're in captivity. So I do not know that. But I know in either event, as God's people are reading this part of Isaiah, they are most likely very discouraged. Can I trust my father? I mean, they've likely known captivity their whole lives. Perhaps their parents and their grandparents might have had a a taste of freedom. But people have been born and died in captivity. And they're thinking, where is this God? This text is a ray of hope in the midst of that. This is God encouraging them. This is God saying, I have not been far off. In fact, quite the opposite. I've been working it all out. You're exactly where you need to be, Israel. So today, we're going to keep that up. And as we get closer and closer in God's plan to the birth of Jesus Christ, we're going to find out that in spite of Israel's failure to depend on God, that God's plan will be carried through to completion. And God is going to continue to reveal to his people that they are not only part of that plan, they're included, they get to take an active role in that plan. They're not just spectators. So let's pick up in Isaiah chapter 41. I'm going to read the first 14 verses as we look at God guiding history. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw together for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and he passes on safely By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations 
from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his neighbor, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Okay. Consider the point I just made. God's hand is guiding all of history. Now I want you to apply that to the two groups of people that we just talked about. First, the coastlands. And second, Israel. How does God interact with them? And how do they respond? Let's first look at the coastlands. They're called in verse 1 to gather their strength and approach God for judgment. And who is this people group? Who are the coastlands? I mean, I don't see any coast, so I guess he's not talking about us. Well, in a nation, as it is with, in America, the coastlands are the ones with all the power and all the influence. Think California. Think New York City. The harbors. Just imagine, and I'm not sticking California and New York immediately in this category, but I want you to imagine a sort of generic self-sufficient people. What need do they have for God? They don't. They have money. They have power. They have influence. So God tells them in verse 1, be quiet, gather your strength, step up, and we'll see what happens. We'll see how strong you really are. And in verses 2 through 4, he looks at similar superpowers. He mentions the one from the east. And in verse 2, that very likely refers to Cyrus of Persia, who would overthrow Babylon. Now reading this, reading about the, the swords and the destruction, reading about this would prompt the Jewish reader to think, oh yeah, God did say back there that, that Babylon would, would overthrow us, but then they themselves would be overthrown. That's what we've been reading about. So all God is saying here is that superpowers come and go, and here comes another one, and I'm the one stirring them up. I make Cyrus, I break Cyrus. And God continues this boast in verse 4, saying, He has done this since the beginning. 
And again, this should encourage the Jewish reader to look backwards and think, oh yeah, God did that. He did that with Pharaoh. He did that with Jericho. They looked so great. And he made them great, and then he smashed them, and he rescued us. So again, a simple point is being made here. God is guiding history. Don't be afraid, Judah, is what this text is saying. Don't be afraid, Israel. I'm not far off. In fact, the plan is going perfectly. And Isaiah builds his case in verse 5 through 7. Keep your eyes there, because I'm going to be here for a little bit. The nations, or the coastlands, see this power, and they tremble. They tremble. Do they? Do they really? I mean, is this, is this humility? Like, like God appears in a cloud to the coastlands, and they all fall on their face. I don't think that's what's happening here because of what these self-sufficient people do next. They help their neighbor and they turn to their brother and they say, be strong. And then they put the blacksmith and the coppersmith to work. And what do you plan to do when you do that? You're not building shovels. They're basically responding in times of trouble out of their own self-sufficiency and exhibiting more self-sufficiency. They're doubling down. And this doesn't seem like a, a, like a big problem on paper, perhaps. I mean, the end of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, this is the ending. We got all of our stuff stolen. Let's just band together and be strong. It's a classic, right? This doesn't seem like a problem. So let's really think about this. Let's start small. Kids, this is when your friend's mom or dad comes to pick them up for Sunday school and they say, it's time to go. And you say, nah, let's keep playing. Don't leave. And you do everything to make that exit not happen. Let's get a little bigger. This is any time, adults, one of your friends makes a terrible life choice and you give them a high five. Or, even worse, you just don't address it. This is every church that abandons sound teaching, that abandons clear teachings of the Bible because they are afraid that they will not fill seats. This is what this is. Let's get even bigger. This is the Tower of Babel. 
where mankind fought God by trying to build a tower up to heaven instead of going out and filling out the earth like they were supposed to do. This is Egypt. This is Pharaoh hardening his heart while God sends down plague after plague. And let's take a close look at history. This is Israel fighting Moses, demanding a return trip to Egypt because they don't like the wilderness. This is Adam and Eve in the garden. And God says, you can eat anything except that. And they say, that. This is the high priest sending Jesus to the cross because he doesn't want to lose his job. There's a window into human nature here. God is moving chess pieces around. He's making history happen. And mankind fights him in vain obsessed with their little place in history because at the end of the day, nobody wants to look weak. Nobody wants to lose their job. Nobody wants to fall down on their faces and just repent. They double down and the blood is on everyone's hands. And so God says to those people, okay, gather your strength and approach me and see what happens. This, is, this has got the coastlands ready to be judged. And Israel is already cowering in captivity. Because they're so weak. And I don't know about you, but when I feel weak, nobody feels farther off to me than God. And that's what makes verse 8 such a comfort. Look at verse 8 with me. What does God call Israel? My servant. My chosen, my friend. And verse verse nine, God hasn't He hasn't cast them off at all. He's still guiding history, and somehow they are on the right side of that history. God has brought them low because it is it is exactly where He wants them to be. And this is a window into the heart of God. Because he's not looking for self-sufficient people. It's such a strong contrast to the coastlands, isn't it? While they are called to, to bring their strength and prepare for judgment, you leap ahead to verse 14 
And Israel's patriarch, Jacob, is compared to a worm. That's God's team. A big pile of worms. You okay with that? Because they're weak. And they're downcast. And they have nothing. And look at what they get in verse 10. In exchange for that. Fear not. God says, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is not some platitude. This is God who created all things and transcends all of time. And he's looking down on this little people group, at this little point in all of history, and he's saying to them, I see you. All is well, my friends. Suddenly, it's not so bad to be in Babylon, is it? This is the hope that should uplift the Jewish reader by helping them correctly interpret the past and so strengthen them to trust the future. Let me reread verses 11 through 14 again and we'll see what God now has in store for this pile of worms. Behold, God says, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, is the Holy One of Israel. This is more than just a promise that Babylon is going down. This is more than simply a promise that Persia is going down. This is a promise that one day it will be impossible to find God's enemies. And here's all Israel needs to do. Here's all they need in order to make it to that day. It's right in verse 13. I, the Lord your God, will hold your hand. It is a firm commitment that a father makes to his child. Like me, sitting in a little motel room with my family, 30 bucks and a bucket of chicken. And we're doing great. Because my job is simply to trust. And some things don't change. 
All my job is, is to trust God as he orders all of history and I live out my little blip in that history. Or as verse 14 says, fear not. The people that are called to fear are the coastlands. It's right in verse 5. No, God's people, they look at history past and they look all the way to the end. And you can't see it all, but it is all going according to God's plan. And God is not like us. And the best part of all of that is that God's weak people will not, and in this case, are not, called to be spectators. We actually get to participate in that plan. And that is point two. God lets his people participate in history. Let me read verses 15 through 20. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. And you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created. So there's one fundamental thing that God's people are allowed to do as he rolls out this plan. They get to participate in a harvest. That's verses 15 and 16. That does not simply mean that you are allowed to major in agriculture, although you are free to do that. God simply uses agricultural language. He's going to make his people new and sharp, having teeth, threshing and crushing and winnowing. And you and I, especially if you've grown up in church, you might be able to pretty quickly interpret that as the Great Commission of Matthew 28. I'm going to send you out. And as Jesus would say elsewhere, look up, the fields are white for harvest. But these people at this point in history would simply hear, I'm going to send you out, you people huddled in this corner. I'm going to send you out and you're going to be my instruments and you will be strong. 
by my making for the mission that I'm going to send you on. So I need you to read this through the eyes of a Babylonian exile. How is this possible for people who are in captivity, who have nothing? How can this mission be accomplished? Well, it only happens if God does all the work. And look at what the Lord is working out for his people for this mission. Look at verse 17. Water where there is no water. Verse 18. Rivers, fountains, pools, springs, water everywhere. Verse 19. Like like the growth, we have cedars, we have acacia trees, so on. In short, in all of this, God will make life where there is no life. He's not just planting a seed in the grassland. This isn't my children helping me to pad down a seed and we water it. This is a tree growing in a desert. You can't just do that. God has to do that. Life from lifelessness. This is not about agriculture. This is history coming full circle. I think if you're a Jewish reader and you're reading this, you're going to then look back at the beginning of history, at the Garden of Eden, and to say, ah, one day God promises the earth is going to look like that again. Life where there is nothing. And this is all done for the sake of verse 20. That they may see and know that they might consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. In short, what God is calling the reader to see here is that there's a mission of global redemption coming and it's all for God's glory and that weak little worm Israel gets to be a part of it. And in light of that, I have two application questions for you this morning. The first one is this. Are you weak enough for this mission? to go out and to participate in this harvest? And that's kind of a strange question because if you're like me, you like to have all your line items in order before you go do stuff. Or you, you want to know how it's going to play out before you go do that thing. Or if you're like me, you fall short, and when you do that, you then double down and save face because at the end of the day, you don't want to look weak. If that's you, you've probably already figured it out 
but you look a little bit more like the coastlands than Israel. But the good news is this. To God, it's all the same. Let that drive you to your knees. Because if you're feeling totally weak, if you're feeling like a worm this morning, do not fear. You're perfect for the job. But if you're thinking, I'm not so bad, I can't help you. Maybe I'll check in next week. Because God is not looking for self-sufficient people. God is looking for people to boast in His sufficiency. God is not looking for people who are concerned, who are preoccupied with their little place in history. God is looking for people who are concerned with the Lord of history. I mean, weak people attempting great things for God, that's how we're here. Right? Let's do Advent. Right? God picks Mary, a virgin, probably a teenager, from a nothing town. At a point in history where women were actual property. God's like, I'm using her. And he keeps picking his team. You know what? I'm going to pick Joseph, a carpenter. Then you know what? I want to get some shepherds. Shepherds. That's why David got overlooked as king, because he was a shepherd. And God says, I want him. And then God himself takes the form of a weak baby. And then God uses a Roman cross to bring life to the world. And that is the centerpiece of all of history. And you can keep going. And you can think about Jesus' disciples, common men, and the, the poor and lame and needy who comprised Jesus' bravest followers. And the women who happened upon the empty tomb on the third day and were the first to testify, even though their testifying didn't even count in court. God used weak, tiny people at little points in history to point to the God of all history so that the world could not help but say, like in verse 20, the Lord's done this. The Lord did all of this. Because one day, verse 20, 
is going to be real. The world will actually bow down. As one preacher says, you'll bow down or you'll bow down. So we can't stop history, but we can be on the correct side of that history. Because the Lord guides history, partnering with his people, and he does all of that for his glory. And in light of that, I'm going to close with my second question. As you go about this season, and as you consider all the choices you might make with the rest of your lives, Ask yourself this question once you've admitted your weakness. And the question is this. What will bring the Lord the most glory? That question has to drive all the other questions. We are so small. There are little points in history and the Lord is so big. And he calls us to help. And we are weak. And still he chooses us. It's so good. I'd like us to bow our heads for a few moments. Just quietly reflect on our weakness. Think about the areas in your life. Where are you most weak? And praise God for those things. And I'd also like you to consider the areas in your life where you think you're the most strong and confess to the Lord. Let's bow our heads for a few moments and then I'll close this in prayer. Dear God, in the Garden of Eden, we did our very best to stop you, and we could not. And throughout history, all of mankind built a case up against itself, trying our best to protect ourselves and to deny you. But that did not stop you. Lord, even when you came in the form of a servant, we did our best to stop you. Your message was offensive. We did our best to stop you, and death itself could not. Lord, we thank you that because of that, you make us strong. You lift us up. Lord, let us be silent before you and consider your greatness. Let that enable us to go out. Amen.